You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 21, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Victor Meyer Schoenberger, professor of internet governance and regulation at the Oxford Internet Institute and author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age, which won the 2010 Marshall McLuhan Award for Outstanding Book and the 2010 Don K. Price Award for Best Book in Science and Technology Politics. In today's interview, we'll talk about striking a balance between the benefits of the Internet's infinite memory and the need to move on from the past in order to grow and live in the present moment. We're extremely pleased to welcome Victor Meyer Schoenberger to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Today I'll be speaking with Victor Meyer Schoenberger about the value of forgetting in the digital age. Snapchat was one of the first tools to come along that made it easy for people to communicate with each other in ways that didn't linger on the internet. And now there's many tools available for making it easy for your communications, files, photos, videos, and music, and all other kinds of data to last only for a short amount of time and then disappear. But you don't need to use any special tool to take advantage of some of the benefits of what's sometimes called ephemeral or transient, meaning non-permanent, data. You can go about mindfully deleting data periodically or at certain times throughout the year or whenever you feel like it. I'd like to suggest as an experiment that if you don't do this, that you try going through some of your data, maybe photos on your phone, files, letters, other documents on your computer, spreadsheets, and just deleting them. Is this something that you ever do? Uh, in the old days of computers, storage space was very limited, and so there was a real need to delete data over time or at least move it onto the old days of floppy disk or some other hard drive because you would just run out of space. That very rarely happens now, so many people don't have the experience of deleting data because there's just not a need to do it. But I challenge you to, for example, go through your photos and as a mindfulness practice, look at some of those photos individually and ask yourself, do I really need this photo anymore? And if you don't need it, delete it. And then see what that feels like. Do you have a feeling of loss? Uh, when you're looking at a photo, particularly if you scroll back and look at photos from a long time ago, and for you a long time ago might be a year ago, it might be five years ago, it might be ten years ago, do you have a feeling of nostalgia when you look at it? Do you have an urge to keep it uh, rather than delete it? I'm not instructing you that you necessarily have to delete every photo. Instead, I'm just suggesting that you apply some mindfulness to your experience of looking at the photos, 
paying attention to what your thoughts and feelings are about them. Maybe they bring up a happy experience that you had that's captured by the image, or maybe a sad or neutral experience. And then when you think about deleting that photo, pay attention to your thoughts and your feelings and sensations when you're even considering deleting it. And then I would challenge you to delete at least one photo, especially if you're finding yourself having a hard time actually going through with the process of deleting something like that. I would say the harder it is for you, maybe the more important it is to at least try it out to see what the experience is like if that's not something that you normally do. And then once you've deleted that photo, how do you feel? You might feel some feeling of loss or sadness and see if you can sit with that feeling and perhaps try it again with another photo. Maybe do some in bulk. And I'd suggest you try this over time. Return to this process of deleting or a kind of digital forgetting and see if particularly if you have any negative feelings about it while you're doing it. See if at other times in the future, are there any positive feelings? Do you have some positive feeling from having less digital clutter on your phone? Maybe by seeing fewer thumbnail images on your phone, it creates less anxiety to just see a smaller number of photos. I don't know what your experience will be, but I'd suggest particularly because these days many of us only generate and receive and accumulate data and often don't ever or very rarely delete it. I'd suggest you try out that experience of deleting, particularly to see if you find any positive benefits from it. And now I will turn to my interview with Victor Meyer Schoenberger, where we'll talk at length about the virtues of digital forgetting. Hi, Victor, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, Robert. Thanks so much for being here today. I'd like to start by talking about your work on the need to forget in the digital world. I think certainly to me, when I first encountered uh, your book, Delete the Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age, it struck me as a bit of a strange or counterintuitive virtue, given that the whole trend of the development of computer and internet technology has been to give us more and more ways in which to remember. And we tend to think of that ability to remember more and more as often solely a virtue. I wonder if you could talk, give us an introduction to what might be the problems with having this perfect uh, you know, oh, never, never erasing memory of computers and the internet. Sure, I'd be delighted to. Um, well, there's there's two parts here. One is why forgetting is really important, and two is uh, why are we not um, wh why are we not taking forgetting more seriously? So, why is forgetting really important? Well, um, forgetting enables us to. Um, to act and decide in the present rather than to be 
connected, linked to our past. Um, if we if we act in the now, if we make decisions today, and we know in our mind all of the failed decisions of our past, <laughs> we would have difficulties deciding in the now and in 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 the here. There's actually a, a study of uh, a small number of people who have. Um, very uh, exceptionally good episodic memory. And so they remember pretty much every day over the last 20 or 30 years of their lives. Now, if you ask them about, say, a, a day 20 years ago, they can tell you what weather there was, what, what they did during the day, who called, what was on television and so forth. But when you ask them um, what this does, they say, well, if I have to make a decision in the now – um, I, I'm always remembering all of my failed decisions of the past, all of the agony of decision making of the past, and so that um, clouds and impedes my ability to decide. Yeah, so in a way, um, uh, living in the now means letting go of the past, and uh, forgetting enables us to do that. Uh, it also ha- helps us to forgive each other. Um, as we forget, we forgive. Um, and it helps us, therefore, to evolve and to grow as human beings. Yeah, I think about maybe uh, a Facebook page as a living example of that never forgetting and the way in which it can haunt people. I mean, I'm in my mid-40s now, and I often feel very grateful that I didn't grow up in the time of Facebook for that reason uh, with employers looking back uh, at everything that someone has done in their whole life, you know, perhaps to when they were a very different person at an earlier time. Absolutely. I am sort of of the same generation and boy, am I happy that I didn't have uh, Facebook. But what is interesting to me is that the generation that perhaps is now coming of age, my students, for example, they are pretty good about these digital tools of remembering. Um, What they do is that they post on Facebook sort of what they want to have remembered. Um, If you want, those are the press releases to their parents (laughs) and relatives. Um, And uh, and then they use Snapchat or some other platform that is more ephemeral to share the stuff that they deem as stuff that should be shared but also forgotten. Uh, so in that sense, what, what they have grown up in is a, a world in which there is a multitude of digital tools, some uh, with forgetting enabled and others not, and they use those tools appropriately. I think the, 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 the biggest problem is that generation in between that had uh, the Facebook but no alternative. Uh, I, I, I fear that their past trepid, their, their, their past trespasses will be remembered for a long time. Yeah, and you mentioned Snapchat, which if I remember correctly, and I might be forgetting, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, that came about relatively recently in the history of the internet, may have even been after your book, Delete. And I don't know if your work had any influence on the creation of a technology like that. It, but from what I remember, it was a response to the increasing perceived need to have a way to communicate with people that wouldn't be permanent. In, indeed. And um, and there wasn't just Snapchat, but there were a number of other platforms emerging at the same time. Snapchat just took the lead and is now the, the dominating 
platform for ephemerality, if you want, of messages. Um, but, um, but, but, but I think this is really responding to a demand uh, in the marketplace from people who said, I, I'd love to share information about myself, but I also would like that information not to be permanent. Mm. Mm-hmm. And since this podcast often talks about mindfulness and, and mindfulness practices, I wonder if you, you know, could talk a little bit about um, how the actual experience of communicating with other people might feel different when you know that it won't be stored forever. Does that change the actual experience of communicating and interacting over the Internet? I, I think it does indeed. Um, part of the problem of memory and remembering is that as we take a memory artifact, whether it's a, a physical artifact like a photograph or a digital artifact um, like um, bits uh, of information uh, shared a long time ago over platforms like Facebook, um, the, the problem with that is that um, – as we remember through these artifacts, we uh, don't have the context with us in which uh, these communications took place. So we are decontextualizing and then recontextualizing in our current context mm. the communication. And that means that it is harder for us to understand, harder for us to um, interpret um, and that leads to misunderstandings and misinterpretations. Um, and um, if uh, and, and therefore, some of the problems of digital memory is that as we de and recontextualize, we uh, misunderstand what has been said because we are lacking that context in which the utterance took place. Um, if we had, forgetting in place, on the other hand, uh, if we would communicate knowing that it wouldn't be stored, um, then what we would remember would be the the bottom line mm. of what has been communicated. And, and that uh, harks back to a beautiful short story of um, um, an, entitled Funes uh, de Memorias um, uh, by Jorge Luis Borges, an Argentinian um, writer, uh, who talks about a guy who has perfect memory, remembers every word in every book he read. Um, but the trouble for him, the terrible uh, challenge for him is that as he remembers every tree, he can't see the forest. Mm. Uh, and so um, if we record everything, uh, we may have a lot of trees, but we don't have the conception of a forest. We don't see the bottom line. And I think mindfulness has to do a lot, not with remembering the nitty gritty and the details, but sort of taking with us uh, th that um, that bottom line, that end result, that feeling of how we came out of a conversation rather than the process of conversation itself. Yeah, if I understand you correctly, it seems like it's in part that forgetting helps us to integrate and synthesize our experiences and not just remember them as individual discrete events. 
Indeed, in every act of remembering, human remembering, that is, through our own memory in our brain, every act of human remembering is also an act of um, reconstruction of memory. Um, that is, every time we remember, we also shape and reshape our memory. And that is important because that uh, aligns the memory with our current beliefs and preferences and feelings. It may not be objective anymore, but it helps us overcome what's called cognitive dissonance um, between who we are today and what we did, for example, in the past. And so in that sense, um, our our own process of remembering as a creative process as, as much as it is a, um, a reactive process. So if that's true, it sounds like you're saying that having a more perfect memory of the details, including an external one in the form of the internet, could actually impede this ability to, to integrate and synthesize. Indeed. Uh, the danger is that we not only cannot forget and forgive anymore ourselves or as a society, but that we cannot grow and evolve anymore uh, because we have difficulties moving from the trees to the forest. It's interesting. It all makes perfect sense. And yet, you know, I certainly see within myself often uh, a very strong desire to remember more or an attachment to photographs or other external stored memories. And I live very much in the technology world. And I think about like uh, Gordon Bell, I'm sure you're familiar with his project to basically record every event in his life, you know, visually and, and uh, images and sounds. And there, there's a certain part of at least many people who find that attractive. There's some, some pull to that idea, even if we wouldn't necessarily go as far as Gordon Bell. I wonder if you could speak to what is that lure of having all memories and events at least recorded and at hand, even if you're not going to necessarily access them? Well, to me, this is a very understandable reaction to the fact that for us humans, uh, forgetting is deeply built into how we function, uh, deeply built into how our brain works. Um, because we forget all the time, we want to remember um, it's like, you know, um, the kid who doesn't get candies very often um, loves to go to the candy store. <laughs> um, and, and, and so similarly, uh, the digital nature uh, of the tools uh, that surround us today uh, provide us um, with, um, with an ability to remember uh, that's similar to a kid going into the candy store um, and, 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 um, and, and filling up on candy because uh, th that's the one chance um, to uh, to really indulge in it. Because we humans forget, we want to remember. Um, and so the um, the more um, tools we have to remember, the more we want to use them. But what is interesting is that people like Gordon Bell and others um, um, who – uh, who are using these tools, 
they have an enormous amount of information at their, or data at their disposal. But um, it's like a seed of information that doesn't have any peaks in it. <laughs> and the, the beauty um, of, um, of human forgetting is that with, um, in the past we had um, tools to remember. They were costly, they were sometimes difficult to use, but we could remember if we wanted to. But we reserved those tools for those special moments because photographs were expensive. We only took photos when there was an event that seemed to be important to us, not constantly. Um, and, and so the danger of having a gazillion photos about ourselves and our daily interactions is that when we are being asked, what are the 10 most important moments in your life? We can't recall because mm. it's all just one big thing, big blob of data. Um, uh, and, and, and we never had to choose whether this was a moment to remember or not. Mm. You know, on that note, now that many of us have access to all these photos, other memories of ourselves uh, in a way that we didn't in the past, if there is a benefit to us not accessing them all the time, I wonder what suggestions you have first, just on the individual level for how people might want to try to change their habits or behaviors to reincorporate forgetting into their lives when they do have the easy, nearly free ability to remember everything. My advice would be to make sure that we are not stumbling over our digital memories all the time. Um, and so, you know, take your old emails from five or 10 years ago um, and archive them, put them on a hard drive and put the hard drive up in the attic. Um, if you really need to access them, take the hard drive down and access them. But that requires a deliberate choice to go up in the attic and take the hard drive down. Um, in, in that sense, you're not stumbling over those old emails. You're not stumbling over old photographs. Now, if you want to put um, some wine in a glass in the evening and reminisce on the old times, you can do that. Uh, you, you, you know, you can bring the hard disk down if you want. Um, but it requires a deliberate act and you don't stumble over it that easily. In other words, what I'm advocating are speed bumps in our road to <laughs> recall. It sounds to me like, uh, you know, one of my vices is sweets and I try not to have chocolate everywhere in the house. <laughs> well, well, that's, ex that's exactly right. But, but, but what is interesting about sweets and I'm a chocoholic, so I can empathize. <laughs> um, what's interesting about this is if you have chocolate every single day, every single meal, um, it's not very special anymore mm -hmm. and it loses some of its, some of its quality. And so, um, so, so I think I am a chocoholic because chocolate is something of a treat to me. Um, not an exceptional treat, but, but I eat it if I have achieved something small or large. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that sense, um, it retains its quality, um, of, um, of a, a gift if you want. Mm, yeah. Something special.
That's really helpful suggestion on the individual level, but I know in your work you you focus also on you know, organizational or governmental policy level. I wonder if we can start taking a step back. Uh, you know, certainly there's in a sense uh, there are limits to what an individual can do to forget in the face of this technology that's around us all the time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about either technological changes or policy or legal changes that you'd be in favor of or that have happened uh, to facilitate digital forgetting. Sure. There's a lot of changes that have um, happened in part as a reaction to this uh, ever-increasing digital memory trove. Um, for example, in Europe, the European Court of Justice ruled that uh, Europeans have a right to be forgotten. Uh, that means that um, under certain circumstances, they can request that their personal information is being deleted by somebody else who has collected and stored them. Um, if there is no um, uh, overarching interest uh, by the data collector to continue to to keep uh, that piece of personal information. And there's been a lot of debate about whether or not the right to be forgotten is, is a good thing. To me, um, the, it, it's less of a question whether it's, it's good or bad than whether it solves the problem. And to me, um, a right um, that needs to be enforced and executed uh, through court proceedings and so forth is almost never um, a, um, a, a good mechanism uh, for the general public because very few people will exercise their rights. Um, and it, uh, it doesn't empower uh, most of us. It only empowers a small uh, a portion of people. So to me, um, new tools like Snapchat, which we mentioned, is actually um, much more powerful. Uh, Snapchat is uh, an, an, uh, enabling humans uh, in the millions and millions to selectively uh, have some of their past forgotten and to introduce ephemerality. So to me, what's more interesting than legal responses um, to this digital preservation um, push is um, whether we can have some organizational reactions uh, in the marketplace, like through Snapchat or through some um, um, organizational mechanisms um, that, that we can put in place. I'm curious about organizational mechanisms. Are there either any that you've seen or that you promote or suggest to put into place within organizations? Well, um, I, I've seen one uh, that I really uh, kind of liked, and that was with the Guardian newspaper. It's a daily newspaper quite respected in Britain. Um, and the Guardian has uh, an archive. The archive can be accessed from the Internet. Now, um, if you are accessing an article in the archive, um, you, you might find out what people did if their name is mentioned five, ten years ago. Um, and so the Guardian had has put in place an organizational uh, process where you can um, request that uh, your name is taken um, out, um, deleted uh, of an article in the archive. 
Um, and then they go through a process, assess whether or not there is a, an overarching public interest in keeping your name uh, in the article or not. But if they think that there is no overarching interest, they anonymize the article and put an asterisk there and say uh, anonymized on the request of the author. So when you um, access the Guardian archive online through the Internet, you see an anonymized version of the article. But if you really and, and you see by ast with an asterisk there that it has been anonymized. But if you want to find out who was it, you can still go to the uh, Guardian physically and look at their digital archive there, and then you see the original. So in other words, it's another version of that speed bump mm -hmm. um, of remembering that I talked earlier. Um, so we don't want to censor the past, but we want to make sure that it also doesn't get in our way of acting and thinking in the present. Yeah, and I remember reading and <laughs> it could have been in your book, but I don't remember uh, some examples of just how harmful it can be if those kinds of speed bumps aren't put into place. You know, there might be, have been an article alleging that someone did something 20 years ago and it was later corrected or they were found innocent or the article was, you know, otherwise inaccurate in some way and there wasn't in the 1970s, let's say, a real need to go back and fix it because those speed bumps were already in place just by the nature of print newspapers. And yet now those kinds of inaccurate reports are just as present as any others when people can search for them on the internet. So there's a real need to have people you know, be able to correct those errors so that people who come across them don't, as you said, interpret them in the wrong current context. You're absolutely right, Robert. It's about correcting uh, incorrect information, but it goes far beyond that. Um, th there's been a, a, a controversy around websites in, in the U.S. that uh, collect um, mugshots uh, from state prisons. Um, and uh, this is information that uh, can be obtained through freedom of information processes. And so they then put those mugshots with the name of the person uh, and um, the, the prison in which this person served on their websites um, and make those um, uh, names searchable. Um, and um, this is perfectly correct information. Um, and then they make a business um, um, uh, out of uh, uh, collecting a couple of hundred dollars uh, from th these uh, um, prison inmates to be taken off the website. Um, and uh, to me, it's almost like uh, collecting a ransom, mm -hmm. an information ransom. But what is important here is that this is correct information, but it may be information about an incarceration and imprisonment 10 years ago. And if if I made a mistake 10 years ago and did my time and now am perfectly um, normal and, and lawful, law-abiding citizen again and have rebuilt my social life, um, the, the, the accessibility of this mugshot from 10 years ago uh, may ruin uh, my, uh, my life that I have rebuilt. Um, be, because, you know, my community might find out that I uh, was imprisoned 10 years ago. And to me, 
therefore forgetting is not just about correcting wrongful information of the past, but also ensuring that correct information of the past really is put in its perspective um, and uh, put in its perspective of relevance. Uh, if information about my past is no longer relevant to who I am today, it shouldn't be so easily accessible. Yeah, you. I really like the way you put it. You've written about the need to make it possible for people to have second chances. I mean, in the U.S., the culture is very much one in which the ability to remake oneself sometimes two or three times is it's very highly valued. And yet, how how can that be done if the if someone's past is always immediately present? Absolutely right. And in a way, the 19th century in the U.S. is full of story after story after story of somebody um, trying to um, to make a business or um, find a life and then failing and then moving somewhere else, often moving (laughs) west uh, and, and, and trying afresh. And these um, these second starts are incredibly important. But we do that today all the time. You know, we, we may have a fallout with a friend of ours because maybe we have grown apart. And then sometimes we, we say, okay, you know, that's that. And that friendship has come to an end. But then we go out and we find some new friends mm-hmm. or some new relationship. So we get new starts there. Uh, and to the extent that we have digital repositories that record all of our past deeds, we make it harder for people to restart. Yeah, I mean, I've paid attention to it a lot in the public sphere when there's a controversy about someone who's public and uh, then people go back and find something they said or did 20 or 30 years ago uh, that is, as you said, completely accurate. Um, And I watch my own reaction. And if I'm honest, sometimes if it's a person I don't like, (laughs) I think that's great. (laughs) But, but, um, you know, I do then question uh, to what extent is it, is it fair or just to hold people sometimes maybe to one thing they've said uh, a long time ago, uh, particularly uh, if they're much older now? I wonder what you think about that, just the, the, the fact that we're living so much longer. I wonder how much that has an impact on all of this. Oh, oh absolutely. And um, as we are, we're looking at the, the, the current uh, discussions, um, the, the, you know, we, we're we're hearing uh, horrendous reports uh, of um, sexual harassment and grotesque uh, misogynist behavior um, of um, men um, decades ago. Um, uh, sometimes, uh, and and this is really shocking, um, and this should not be condoned. Uh, by, by, by any stretch. At the same time, um, we also have to accept um, and to keep in mind that um, you know the 1960s or the 1970s or the 1980s aren't the same as isn't the same time as time we are living in. Um, and hopefully, over time, we as a society and individually as well 
uh, we have grown to be more sensitive um, to these very important issues. Um, but but it means also that we have to put some of those um, horrendous behaviors, um, misogynist behaviors uh, of the past into some of the perspective. This I don't want to condone it by, by, by any means, but I do want us to be um, to be sensitive to the um, to the fact that humans evolve over time as well. Yeah, I'm entirely with you. Uh, a lot of the behavior that's come out, as you said, is can't be condoned in any way at any time. And it, it seems that's part of the challenge is trying to be careful about you know, distinguishing between behaviors that might have been appropriate at a previous time and aren't now, and those that have never been appropriate uh, ever. Uh, and, and, and that is, Robert, if I may interject here, that's precisely the problem that, that we face with digital memories as well. If we collect everything, then nothing stands out. Um, if um, If we... Don't you know if if everything is being remembered uh, equally, then then uh, very important um, moments in history don't stand out anymore. The assassination of JFK, um, the um, uh, Pearl Harbor, they don't stand out anymore because they're drowned out by this sea of continuous uh, collection and memorization. Uh, and so I am far more interested in our ability uh, to forget the trivial and irrelevant over time so that those things that are important and relevant to who we are and what we aspire to be or what we don't want ever to happen again, really stand out and can be remembered for what they are. The, 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 the worry that I have with the Me Too campaign is that we are now starting to remember uh, and to uh, discuss um, uh, all those uh, crazy comments but not horrendous actions of the 1970s and the 1980s that may have been acceptable then but certainly aren't acceptable today and thereby forget to put the focus on the horrendous action then that are and would be as horrendous or would have been as horrendous then as they are uh, horrendous today. Um, we, we really need to differentiate between uh, what transcends time and what is very closely linked to time. And um, indiscriminate remembering makes that harder. Mm. You know, to bring it back to mindfulness, it sounds like in the end, we, we can't abdicate our own human responsibility for making judgments about the relative value of facts and just leave it up to the technology to provide all the facts to us and then mindlessly assume that they're all equal in relevance or value. There's still, no matter how powerful the technology is, we still have a responsibility to do our own internal filtering and evaluation. Absolutely. And it also means that uh, not only have, 
have we to to be responsible um, for the interpretation uh, of the memory, uh, but we need to do so in a way that is open to criticism uh, and uh, and and open to debate and open to argument, uh, not because um, not because it's always wrong, uh, but because only through arguments and debates can we hope that our interpretation um, improves and gets closer to what is what is correct. Mm. I think, you know, bringing that it back to that human connection and human interpretation and human relationships um, is a great way to wrap this up. It's been really great, fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it, Victor. Thank you very much, Robert, for having me. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Victor Meyer Schonenberger, author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with Michael Harris, author of Solitude in Pursuit of a Singular Life in a Crowded World and The End of Absence, Reclaiming What We've Lost in a World of Constant Connection.